Turn in your Bibles to Psalm 72. Psalm 72. We have looked through the various covenants of the Old Testament, and now we're looking in particular at the covenant that God made with David. In this psalm, we have a description of the glories of the Davidic covenant. Psalm 72. Endow the king with your justice, O God, the royal son with your righteousness. He will judge your people in righteousness, your afflicted ones with justice. The mountains will bring prosperity to the people, the hills the fruit of righteousness. He will defend the afflicted among the people and save the children of the needy. He will crush the oppressor. He will endure as long as the sun, as long as the moon, through all generations. He will be like rain falling on a mown field, like showers watering the earth. In his days the righteous will flourish. Prosperity will abound till the moon is no more. He will rule from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. The desert tribes will bow before him and his enemies will lick the dust. The kings of Tarshish and of distant shores will bring tribute to him. The kings of Sheba and Seba will present him gifts. All kings will bow down to him and all nations will serve him. For he will deliver the needy who cry out, the afflicted who have no one to help. He will take pity on the weak and needy and save the needy from death. He will rescue them from oppression and violence, for precious is their blood in his sight. Long may he live. May gold from Sheba be given him. May people ever pray for him and bless him all day long. Let grain abound throughout the land. On the tops of the hills may it sway. Let its fruit flourish like Lebanon. Let it thrive like the grass of the field. May his name endure forever. May it continue as long as the sun. All nations will be blessed through him, and they will call him blessed. Praise be to the Lord God, the God of Israel, who alone does marvelous things. Praise be to his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. This concludes the prayers of David, the son of Jesse. David, the covenant of the kingdom. Let us pray. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, we thank you that Jesus Christ has been established as King of kings and Lord of lords that he is now seated at your right hand and shall reign forever and ever. We sing hallelujah with our hearts, that even though many enemies still threaten the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ, he is now reigning on our behalf. We submit our wills to him. We bow before him and bring our offerings. And we ask that all the nations of the world, all the kingdoms of the earth, may be instructed and may bow to him. We thank you that we are a symbol from many tribes and kindreds and nations and peoples, and that we have seen with our own eyes the way in which you bring nations under your authority. Give us encouragement in our own circumstance to believe that our God reigns. For we ask in Christ's name, amen. 
the center of a kingdom naturally is a king. And certainly that is true of the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That kingship is particularly related to the sonship of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because as the Son of God, he has become heir, inheritor of all the power and of all the wealth that belongs to his Father. Look at Hebrews chapter 1, and you can see how the Davidic covenant finds its fulfillment in the reign of our Lord Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 1. The writer to the Hebrews begins, In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. In the olden days, God communicated his will by many different people. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. Now that reference is to our Lord Jesus Christ, who is the Son of God, whom he appointed heir, that is inheritor, of all things, and through whom he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in the heavens. Where is Jesus Christ now? You don't see him. He's not on earth in his physical body. Where is he? He is seated at the right hand of God, which is a symbol of the power of God. And he is reigning as king from that perspective. You remember the last words of our Lord Jesus? All authority is given unto me in heaven and in earth. He is over all the nations, and because he is over all the nations, he therefore says, Go ye into all the world, and preach the good news of my kingdom to all the peoples of the earth. Now notice in verse 5 that the writer to the Hebrews quotes that verse that is central to the establishment of God's covenant with David. For to which of the angels does God say, You are my son, today I have become your father. That's a quotation from Psalm 2-7. Or again, I will be his father and he will be my son. And that comes from 2 Samuel 7 verse 14. And it is in 2 Samuel 7 14 that God said to David, You're not to build my house. You're not to establish my throne. But your son will. And I will be to your son as a father, and he shall be as a son to me. And that was a prophecy of the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in the establishment of his kingship. The center and the heart of a kingdom is the king. And we can rejoice over the fact that the king has come. Now let's look at one other place where 2 Samuel 7.14 is quoted in the New Testament to underscore the significance of Christ's present lordship for you in your daily lives. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 6. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. This morning, you were called to worship by the words of 2 Samuel chapter 6 
verses 17 and 18. Now look at these verses. Therefore come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing and I will receive you. I will be a father to you. Now that's a plural you. And you, that is a plural you, will be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. That's 2 Samuel 7.14. But now it is applied to all you who are a part of the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. You are the sons and the daughters of our Lord Jesus Christ. And you are reigning, even right now, over his kingdom. Now you may not always feel that you are in control. You may not always think that all things appear to be under your authority and under the authority of our Lord Jesus Christ. But is that not the meaning of faith? Is not the way, that the way that you are called upon to live from day to day? To believe what you cannot see with your eyes. That even though the circumstances may seem to go against you, you can believe that you are a son, that you are a daughter of Almighty God, And his kingdom has come because Christ is reigning at God's right hand. And therefore all things are working together for good to them that love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. Now that's the heart and the essence of the covenant that God established with David 3,000 years ago. It's still a vital covenant that is very important to you in your daily life. Now this evening we're going to look at three significant aspects of the Davidic covenant as they are manifested in your life today. First of all, consider the king as a covenant mediator. Someone has said that one of your greatest callings to discipleship is to think. You can serve Christ in all kinds of ways, but one of the most important things for you to do as a Christian is to think. To use your mind as well as your heart so that you can understand properly the world in which you live and so that you can respond in a proper faith to the circumstances that are present. Now you're going to have to think about these new ideas of the covenant that God has established with David. Now the first of these important ideas is that God has established his son David as a covenant mediator as one who stands between God and the people. That's the way the king functioned in the Old Covenant. Usually, you think of the king of a people as having a close relationship with the people over whom he is exercising his government. The king is closely related to his people. But according to the Bible's concept of David and David's sons as kings, they had a unique role of not only relating to the people, but they also related to God on behalf of the people. They were, as a matter of fact, the mediators of the covenant. You find several circumstances in which the descendants of David established a covenant. It says of David that he bound the people in covenant with God. Now, the covenant mediator has a twofold role. First of all, he brings the will of God to the people. Secondly, he brings the cares and concerns of the people back to God. 
And that is the role that Jesus Christ, who is the descendant of David, who is now reigning at the right hand of God, holds with respect to you as his people. He is the mediator of the covenant. He is the one who stands between God and his people. You know something of the tension that prevailed in the days of the judges? You remember that tension in the days of the judges? It manifested itself particularly in the time of Samuel. In the time of Samuel, the people said, we want a king like all the other nations. And Samuel responds, oh no, God is your king. What are you doing desiring a king like all the nations? You should recognize that God is your king. Now your first response in that kind of dialogue is to say, well, I'm on Samuel's side. He's the one that has the right perspective. And basically that is correct. But it is also true that there was something correct, even though their timing was wrong, even though their motivation was wrong, even though their perception was somewhat wrong, the people also understood their own need. You remember the cycle of the judges? You remember how Israel would fall into sin? And then God would send a chastening judgment upon them. The people would cry out to God and he would send a judge to deliver them. The judge would save his people from their calamity, whether it be economic, whether it be physical oppression, whatever it might be. But then what would happen? The judge would die. The judge would die. And there would be no one there to stand in the breach and to continue to lead the people in a path of righteousness. The whole book of Judges in the Old Testament is written to underscore the fact that God's people have a need for a king, one to stand between God and the people. And that's what happened when David became king. Now it was established so that there would be a permanency of the reign of God's Redeemer, a permanency of the lordship of God's representative. So that when David died, his son would take over. And so that forever and ever, there would be a reigning of the man after God's own heart over God's people. That was the need. And that need was finally met when God said to David, You and your sons will reign over my throne, over my people forever. Now, that is fulfilled when Jesus Christ was established as a king-priest. Not after the order of Levi, but after the order of Melchizedek, in which you have the perfect blending of the two offices of priest and king. One who can respond to the crying of the people to God for their need, and one who can save the people when they are in need. Now, it is a great thing for you to recognize that your king today is your priest. We have local government here, and it has a certain semblance of control over your life. You have a boss at work, and in a sense, he tells you what to do and what not to do. But the ultimate authority of your life, actually, is the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the one who gives you that raise in your work. He's the one that ordains everything that comes in your life, whether it seems to be to you good or evil. 
But do you realize that the one who is ruling over your life, who is telling you whether you have good health or bad health, whether you prosper or fail in life, the one who ultimately is reigning over every circumstance of your life is also the priest who is interceding for your life. His primary concern is for your well-being. And the one who has the authority over the, the life that you live is also the one that is constantly praying to the Father by name on your behalf. What a tremendous circumstance you're in that the one who is your priest is also your king. And the one who is your king is also your priest. That is the meaning of the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant in Jesus Christ who is your king and also your covenant mediator. Just this past week I was in court. I haven't been in court many times, but I was giving testimony with respect to a little five-year-old child who was being pulled between two parents. And I was to give testimony in support of some Christian needs of this particular child. Wouldn't it have been a wonderful thing? Of course, we can't, couldn't stand that in, in our culture because we know that men are sinful and they would abuse a circumstance. But wouldn't it have been a wonderful thing if the lawyer, the advocate for this little five-year-old child, would have also been the judge to make the decision for that little five-year-old child? We're all like little children. We all have a need for an advocate and we have a need for an authority that will rule on our behalf. Our Lord Jesus Christ is that one who is the covenant mediator, the one who stands between God and us, who pleads our cause for the Father before the Father and also directs the outcome of our lives on behalf of the Father. Now a second Distinctive aspect of the Davidic covenant is the line of David and the location of Jerusalem as it was established in the Davidic covenant. The line of David and the location of Jerusalem. When God says that he will establish David's line or his descendants to rule over his people, he says that this line shall rule over my people how long? How long? Forever. That's exactly right. He shall rule over my people forever. And you can see it in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 16, where the Lord says to David, Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Now, the faithfulness of God with respect to this promise to David, is seen in the history of the Old Covenant people. Do you know how long the line of David ruled in Jerusalem? Do you know how long they were in charge of that nation? For over 400 years. Now, did you realize that that is probably the longest dynasty in the history of the human world, of the world in which human beings have lived. There may be some others. Maybe you can point them out to me. But so far as I can tell, that is probably 
the longest continuous unbroken dynasty in, the hist in human history. David and his descendants reigned for 400 years in Jerusalem. God had said, not only will I maintain you as the king forever and your descendants forever, but I will also maintain Jerusalem forever because I have established my throne in that one city of Jerusalem. Anybody see a problem? Of course, the problem came in 586 B.C. What happened in 586 B.C.? The line of David was cut off. The city of Jerusalem was destroyed. How then could God prove that he was faithful over all this time? Well, some have suggested, well, yes, there was a little, little parenthesis here, just a little interruption of the Davidic throne. But then it'll pick up again. Well, that's one way to solve the problem. But when you think about it, he reigned for 400 years, and then there was 400 years in which he did not reign, in which there was no manifestation of a Davidic king. You might even say, even until 1986, there still is no king, if you took a certain perspective on that particular question. Now, when you read in the Bible that you're going to be with the Lord in heaven forever, how do you think about it? You'll be there for 400 years, and then for 400 years you won't be there, and then maybe you'll be restored again? No, that's not the concept of forever, of eternity in the Bible. It's not only forever in the sense of being an endless reign, but it is a reign that is unbroken, a reign that continues without interruption. So now we look at the problem and say, what is going on here? God said that David and his son would reign over the throne in Jerusalem forever and ever. And yet there was an interruption. Well, I think the way to deal with that problem, I think the way to deal with that problem is to consider the typological role of David and Jerusalem in the Old Testament. Now, that's a big word, typological, but all it means is an enacted prophecy. The enactment of a prophecy that was to be fulfilled in the future. God predicted the future not only by words, but he also predicted the future by actions in history. Can you think of any Old Testament actions in history that predicted the future? Oh, it's loaded with them. What happened in the Passover? Well, a little lamb was slain, and the blood was applied on the doorposts. And did that blood of the Passover lamb have the power to remove sin? No, it didn't have the power to remove sin. It was a prophetic prediction of the Passover lamb that would come. And for a few hundred years, that Passover celebration continued in Israel, and by faith they were delivered, but it was all because of what was going to come in the future. And one day the time came in which the Passover lamb had no more significance in terms of its Old Testament form for God's people. And yet God had said, you will celebrate the Passover forever. The same is true with all the sacrificial system. The same is true with respect to the manna in the Old Testament. 
God gave bread from heaven to feed Israel in the wilderness. It was a sign of God's perpetual care for his people. But a time came when the manna ceased. And then Jesus came and he said, I am the bread of life. I am the bread that has come down from heaven. And if anyone will eat of this bread, he will live forever. The serpent upon a pole, the water from the rock, the establishment of the kingdom in the Old Covenant also was a typological picture of what was to come in the future. That reality of the typological character of the Old Covenant kingdom is seen very clearly in a passage like 1 Chronicles chapter 29. Now you used to not know what 1 Chronicles was or what it was all about, but now that you've read 1 Chronicles, you know a little bit about it, right? Now look at the end of 1 Chronicles, the last chapter of this great book in the Old Testament. Here in the last few verses, you have Solomon being acknowledged as king in the place of David. Here's the concept of the succession of David's son upon his throne. First Chronicles 29, verse 21. The next day they made sacrifices to the Lord and presented burnt offerings to him, a thousand bulls, a thousand rams, and a thousand male lambs together with their drink offerings and other sacrifices in abundance for all Israel. It was quite a celebration. They ate and drank. See, this was the first time that they had ever had the son of a king succeed him. This was the first time. This was great hope for them that God would reign forever. They ate and drank with great joy before the Lord that day. They acknowledged Solomon, son of David, as king a second time and anointed him for the Lord to be ruler and Zadok to be priest. So Solomon sat on the throne of the Lord as king in place of his father, David. Now that is an amazing statement. Do you know what the throne of Yahweh is? That's the word used for the covenant God of Israel. Solomon sat on the throne of Yahweh, the throne of God, in that Old Testament passage. Now, did Solomon really sit on the throne of God? Did he sit on the throne of God? Were the cherubim around him in glory as Isaiah saw them? Well, you know, the throne of God is up in heaven. Earth cannot contain God. Earth cannot contain the glory of God. And yet the scripture says that Solomon sat on the throne of God. Now, what does it mean? It means that this was a typological picture. It was an enacted prophecy of what was going to happen in the future. And you want to read about the fulfillment of that prophecy of the son of David sitting upon the throne of God when it really came to pass? Do you know where it really came to pass? It's recorded in the New Testament. It happened in history. Well, let's look at it. Turn to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, verse 29. And here is the first Christian sermon as Peter is now preaching on the day of Pentecost, explaining the circumstances of the day. He says in Acts 2, 29, Brothers, I can tell you confidently 
that the patriarch David died and was buried and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. That's exactly what he's talking about. About the establishment of David's son upon David's throne. Seeing what was ahead, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah. That he was not abandoned to the grave, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of the fact, exalted to the right hand of God. He has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, even though God said, Your son shall reign on my throne forever. David didn't ascend to heaven to the right hand of God, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. That's David's throne. That's where David reigns, from God's right hand. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord, King, and Messiah, the Anointed One. Isn't it glorious to realize that that which was promised to David a thousand years before Christ was fulfilled? When Jesus came out of, the, out of the tomb, that was the beginning of the ascension of the son of David. And he didn't stop when he got to earth, did he? He kept going until he was seated on the throne of Yahweh. And that's where he is right now. He is reigning over heaven and earth. All authority, not will be given to me, says the Lord Jesus. He said, the Lord Jesus. He says, all authority has been given unto me in heaven and in earth. And therefore, you are to go into all the world and preach the good news of the kingdom of God that has come to all the nations of the earth. Do you know what the name of the book of Revelation really is? It's called the Apocalypse. And do you know what that word Apocalypse means? It means unveiling. If you could imagine a curtain behind me, and behind that is a glorious throne, and at a certain point, at a certain sign, the curtain pulls, and there you see what's been there all along. Someone reigning and in authority. And that's what's going to happen one day when the Lord Jesus appears in his glory. He's already reigning. When the wicked seem to have power, it's only by the permission of Christ. When the wicked seem to be over the nations, it's only by the permission of the Lord Jesus Christ. And even their raging, he uses for his own glory. And when that boss of yours at work gets mad at you and fires you, praise the Lord. He is under the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when our economy starts going down, praise the Lord. He is humbling us before the nations for our good and for his glory. And one day, the curtain will be drawn. And there you will see, he's been reigning all along. And then, with authority that always has been his, he will bring the wicked to their knees before him. 
that every knee shall bow and every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So that's a critical aspect of the covenant with David. The permanency of this one man as king and the permanency of that location of his reign at the right hand of God. David's kingship and the location of Jerusalem now finds its fulfillment in contrast with the shadowed form in the Old Testament. And finally, just one closing remark about the covenant with David. Is the covenant with David a conditional or an unconditional covenant? That is often discussed. Is it something that is totally without any condition? Do you participate in the joys of Christ's reign without fulfilling any conditions whatsoever? Or is is there a condition associated with it? Well, rather than talking about conditional versus unconditional covenant, what you need to talk about is certainty of fulfillment of those covenant promises. You remember that 2 Samuel 7, 14 says, If my son is disobedient to me, I'm going to spank him. I'm going to chasten him with a rod of men and with the stripes of men. Now, is that a condition? Yes, indeed, it is a condition. But is there certainty that there will be a fulfillment of the conditions so all the blessings of that covenant will come upon God's people? And to that question, you can say absolutely yes. There is a certainty that the conditions of the covenant will be fulfilled so that you can participate in the blessings of having Christ reign over your life. They're fulfilled, first of all, in that Christ, as the son of David, never disobeyed him. I will be to his son, and he will be my father. He will reign forever if, if he doesn't violate my covenant. And the Lord Jesus, on your behalf, did not violate the covenant. And so you can be sure that all the conditions have been fulfilled, and you can receive the blessings. Furthermore, Christ in you, the one who has poured the Holy Spirit upon you, having received the Holy Spirit himself, he will empower you day by day more and more to be able to keep those conditions for the daily fullness of the blessing of God in your life. Part of the reign of Christ in you is that sin shall not have dominion over you. When you sin, the Lord is there to forgive because Christ kept the law for you perfectly. But Christ also is working in you, bringing you into submission to him so that you can have all the blessings of Christ's beneficent reign for you. Trembling soul, beset by fears, thy God reigns. Let us stand for the benediction.